It is the uh, first weekend of a brand new year. You made it through 2009, relatively intact, I see. And uh, you're here on the front, front edge of a new year. I know in, in uh, some cases people come back to church, you know, January, New Year, New Year's resolutions, maybe... That's you today. Um, Maybe you got dragged here, I don't know, by a friend or family member who said, you know, you need to be in church. But uh, we welcome all of you. And you need to know that our church has a purpose. God has given us a high and holy purpose of leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ through his gospel. You know, I think probably one of the most transforming things that you can experience is to get a clearer picture of who God is, to get a fresh, new perspective on the greatness of our God, to kind of get things resized so that you see them in correct proportion. If I could give you one gift in 2010 for your life, it would be an accurate fresh, new perspective of God and who he is. Saying it isn't enough, but I'll say it anyway. God is big. He is huge. His hugeness is unfathomable to us, but I think it starts to come into perspective a little bit when we contemplate the size of the universe that he has made. You've heard the verse in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. The psalmist contends that the vast expanse of the heavens proclaims a message about God to all of humanity, preaching a sermon to us every day and every night about who God is and what he is like. And you know, I think Looking up into the sky, especially the night sky on a clear night, should overwhelm us with the grandeur and the hugeness and the majesty of who God is, especially in our generation, because we can see more with modern technologies, we can see more than any previous generation as we peer into the heavens and see what is there. For example, here's a Hubble telescope image of what astronomers call the Whirlpool Galaxy. Pretty cool, huh? This galaxy contains 300 billion stars. Now, how they arrive at that, how they come to that estimate, I have no idea, but that's a lot of stars. And it's just one of millions of other galaxies in our great universe. The Whirlpool Galaxy is 31 million light years away from us. That's a long way away. You know what a light year is? A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. And light travels pretty fast. 186,000 miles an hour? No, a second. That is flat out hauling. Light traveling at 186,000 miles a second, you have to go 31 million years at that speed to get to that galaxy. Our universe is huge. It is immense. It is expansive. And our God made that. Incredible. 
there in the white core of this galaxy is a black hole. And you can go to the website, hubblesite.org. This is sent back to us from the Hubble telescope. This is the image of the black hole inside of the white core inside of the Whirlpool galaxy. Isn't that cool? The imprint of God and the gospel found throughout his creation. Our God is an immense, enormous, huge, universe-making God. He's bigger than our wildest imaginations. Check this out. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. You know what that tells us? That God didn't even have to lift a finger to create all that we see in our universe. He simply breathed out and stars were formed, billions and billions of stars. We don't worship some little puny little God, okay? We worship a huge, universe-making, star-breathing God. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stars that God breathed into our universe. Here is our very own star in our own solar system, in our own galaxy. Here in our own little cul-de-sac of the universe, we have our own star. It's called what? The sun. There it is in all of its glory with a huge orange crab perched there on the side of it. Actually, that's a, a solar flare, I believe it's called. The sun is an immensely huge, fierce, and ferocious star. On its surface, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's why we don't want to get any closer than 93 million miles to our sun. (laughs) By the way, it takes light traveling at 186,000 miles a second. takes eight minutes for light to get from the sun to our planet. This star is huge. In fact... The sun is a million times the size of the earth. I don't know that you got that. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, you could fit 960,000 of them inside the sun. The sun would literally be 15 feet in diameter if the earth were the size of a golf ball. That's the proportion there. That's like two Kent justices end to end, okay? And you on the earth. Just take a look at this for a moment. This is a golf ball. We're going to let it represent the earth this morning. Everybody take a look at this. Now, do you see yourself on it? You're on the earth, okay? And the sun would be in comparison 15 feet in diameter compared to this golf ball. Enough earths could fill this. If the earth were a golf ball, let me say this right. Enough golf balls to fill up an entire school bus would represent the number of earths that could fit inside the sun. And our God made the sun. You say, well, that's a huge star. Yeah, but let me mention another star to you. This one, this is what it looks like in the night, night sky. It is called Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. Pick your pronunciation. I'll choose Betelgeuse just because it's cool. This is the left shoulder of Orion up in the night sky. It's 427 light years away from us. This is a huge star. Betelgeuse is twice the size, not of the sun, 
but of the Earth's orbit around the sun. It is a massive star. If the Earth were a golf ball, Betelgeuse would be the size of six Empire State Buildings in comparison. You didn't get that, did you? Maybe you're going to have to get a golf ball, take your family, get some plane tickets, go to New York City, stand in front of the Empire State. Have you seen the Empire State Building? Lay your golf ball down on the floor and on the street in front of the Empire State Building. Walk across the street. Look at the golf ball the size of the earth. Look at the Empire State Building. Imagine five more Empire State Buildings on top of that. That's the size of this star compared to the earth. And somewhere you're on it. God did that. He breathed that star into existence. You say, Betelgeuse, that's a huge star. You know what? But it's nothing compared to this next star, Musifi. You heard of this star? Musifi is 3,000 light years away from us. If the earth was a golf ball, Musifi would be the width of two Golden Gate bridges side to side. You didn't get that. Maybe you're going to have to get plane tickets from New York to San Francisco Go to the Golden Gate Bridge, lay the golf ball down on one side of it, step back, go across the bay to Oakland. Imagine a second Golden Gate Bridge. Look over at that golf ball and realize that's the size of the earth compared to this star, this giant, luminous, immense star, Musifi. It is huge. Mind-bending. 2.7 quadrillion earths could fit inside of Musifi. You see, when you get in the neighborhood of God, the creator, our normal units of measurement don't suffice. The mile, the kilometer, (laughs) they don't cut it. 2.7 quadrillion earths could fit inside Musifi. You know what a quadrillion is, right? You know that a billion is a thousand millions and a trillion is a thousand billions and a quadrillion is a thousand trillions. That's a big, big number. You say, well, that's a huge star. God made that? Yeah, God made that. But through the technology of the Hubble telescope, an image has been sent back to us of a star that is bigger yet. This one's called Canis Majoris. What a cool name for a star. I don't know Latin, but I think it means the big dog star. Canis Majoris, right? This is like the big dog star out there in the universe in the night sky. If the earth were a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the size of Mount Everest. Maybe you're going to have to fly over to Nepal, put a parka on, put your golf ball inside your parka, climb to the top of Mount Everest, unzip your parka, take out the golf ball, and realize you're frozen, A, and B, That is a honking big star, Canis Majoris. Six quadrillion Earths could fit inside this star. If the Earth were a golf ball, you could cover the whole state of Texas with golf balls 22 inches deep. That would be the relative proportion and size of Canis Majoris to Earth. You know what? My God made all that. He breathed. (laughs) He breathed the starry host into existence, it says. 
all that and billions more stars, when I try to wrap my mind around the immenseness of the universe and, and billions of stars and galaxies and all of that, I start to get this shrinking feeling. Like I'm really, really, really tiny and small. It's not a bad shrinking feeling. But you know, sin in us has a way of you know, downsizing God. Sin has a way of shrinking God in our imaginations and puffing us up, doesn't it? But when we see the immensity of the, of the universe that God created, it kind of right-sizes things and put things in perspective. And that's what we need today, perspective. God is bigger than we could ever wrap our minds around. And here's the next logical question in my mind. Why in the world, why in the universe... Would the universe-making, star-breathing God cast so much as a glance at our little pinhead-sized planet in this big universe? And beyond that, why would he pay any attention to you or to me in our little locale here on this planet? And you know what the answer is? I give it to you in one word. Grace. The grace of God. The grace of God is what does it. And in our our opening series for this year, we're going to explore together the grace of God. But I wanted you to see it with this as a backdrop, the immensity and the hugeness and the vastness of God as the backdrop for his grace. Because sometimes we talk about grace or we sing about grace and it's just not that amazing because we don't see it in perspective with who God really is. You understand what I'm saying? God's grace is incredible. I want to talk about grace this morning. What is grace? Well, the textbook definition is is this. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Would you say that with me? Grace is God's unmerited favor. His goodness, his favor poured out on those who don't merit it, don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And of course, in the Bible, we're taught that grace comes to people because of Jesus. So God's unmerited favor because of Jesus. And that's why there's a second definition of grace that's an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Have you heard that before? Grace is God's abundant, overflowing riches at Christ's expense. His unmerited favor. To try to understand grace, I found it helpful to compare it with two other concepts that are related to it, justice and mercy. And these are terms that are best understood in a legal sense, justice and mercy and grace. Well, what is justice? Well, justice is getting what we deserve, right? That's justice. Mercy is getting less than we deserve, and grace is getting far more than we deserve. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you're driving to church today out here on Stigler Road, and you're going 60 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and you see the telltale lights in your rearview mirror, and you go, "Uh uh-oh. And you start to work in your mind on your lines that you're going to give the officer who pulls you over and comes up, and you try to roll down your window, and it's icy and it's hard to get down, but you finally get it down. And he walks up to you and says, uh, sir, ma'am, can I see your driver's license? And you show him your driver's license. And he looks at you sternly and says, did you know that you were going 60 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone? 
and you go, was I really, officer? I'm just on my way to church here, and I was running a little late. I didn't want to miss our opening worship time together as a congregation. It's so wonderful, and so I had no idea I was going so fast. I am so sorry. And he looks at you, and he says, well, going to church is good, but today it's going to be costly for you because justice is going to run its course here. Traffic violations like this carry a stiff fine of about what? I haven't gotten a traffic ticket lately. How about some of you who have? What's it running? Hundred, hundred and forty. It's going to cost you a hundred and forty bucks for violating the law today, sir or ma'am. And you go, oh, okay. And you take your ticket and you know you think, well, I guess I could whine or complain about this, but this is really just justice. I'm just getting what I deserve for my infraction, my violation. Now, if the officer decided to show you mercy, then he might say, well, you know, you were in violation of the law, but I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to write a ticket. I'm not going to issue a fine. I'm just going to give you a warning this time, okay? But please, we love our children around here. We want everybody to be safe in our community. Please observe the speed limit in the future especially when you're on your way to church. And that would be mercy, not giving you what you rightfully deserved. And you know, mercy is wonderful, isn't it? But now grace, grace is something almost unimaginable. How, what is grace? Well, if the officer looked at you and said, you know what, you did commit the crime, and rightfully I need to issue a ticket to you, and you'll, have to, you'll be responsible for it, but you know what? I'm going to pay your fine. I'm going to pay your fine for you. And I'm going to take your whole family out to the new Olive Garden tonight for dinner. And I'll pick up the tab. And after that, we'll all go to Cold Stone Creamery together and get ice cream. And I'll take care of that too. That would be grace. That would be receiving far more than you would deserve for your traffic violation. You see the difference? We need to understand justice and mercy and grace. Grace is receiving unmerited favor, goodness that you didn't deserve. A secondary definition we see in the Bible is that grace is God's sufficiency in the life of his people. On one occasion, God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. One man called it God's enoughness. God is enough. That's his grace. God is big enough, we like to say around here, to handle anything that you might encounter in your life. Now, in the Bible, we see God's grace, his unmerited favor, and his sufficiency applied to people's lives in different ways. Theologians talk about common grace. Have you heard that term before? That's God's unmerited favor to everybody on the planet. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the unrighteous and on the righteous. That's common grace. God does that for everybody. And then you'll hear theologians talk about special grace. That's 
That refers to God's blessings that are reserved for his people, his chosen people. And then theologians talk about prevenient grace. And only theologians would use a term like that, prevenient grace. Do you know what that is? That's God's sovereign working in the life of someone to draw them to Jesus Christ. Maybe through the prayers of a grandmother. Maybe through a song that comes on the radio. Maybe through a book that was handed to you or a youth pastor or the experience of birthing a child into the world. God uses a million different things to work in the lives of people to draw them to Jesus Christ. That's his prevenient grace, it's called. New word for you. Theologians talk about his saving grace, his sustaining grace, his serving grace, his sanctifying grace. But I think the place to begin in trying to understand and grasp God's grace is by understanding what theologians call sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Would you say that with me? Sovereign grace. You see, there are certain things that God does, has done, and is doing that are apart from any behavior, any merit, anything that human beings have done. And those are acts of His sovereign grace. Now, if, like me, you were raised in church, you know what can happen? You can get churchy. You can get kind of churchified. And, and I know, you know, there's this notion that, that God has this performance reward system, right? That God's up there in heaven saying, well, you know what? If you perform well for me, then I'll do some good things for you over here. That's a performance reward system. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, if you obey me, then I will bless you. That's a system that we're often taught in church And certainly in the Bible, there are allusions to this. There are conditional promises in the Bible. No question about it. But there are other good things that God has done or is doing that have nothing at all to do with our behavior and whether we earned it or whether we merited it. Truly unmerited favor. And that's called sovereign grace. Here are some classic texts in the Bible that speak of God's sovereign grace. 2 Timothy 1, beginning with verse 8, says this. This is Paul writing to a young pastor. He says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. What's the next phrase? Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the beginning of time. You weren't around. I wasn't around. This is sovereign grace. This is God acting and making decisions and choices back before we were around. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great Glorious passage on the sovereign grace of God. Verse 3 begins like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that's the beloved, that's Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And then this favorite promise that many Christians love, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, last night when I was giving this message to our Saturday night crowd, they were shell-shocked. They were looking at me. I had most interesting looks on faces last night. And I thought, my, my, this is interesting. Now, the 9 o'clock crowd was a little bit... Now, you're the 11 o'clock crowd, okay? So... I need you to stay with me these next few minutes as I talk about four acts of sovereign grace that God has poured out, gracious things that God has done and is currently doing as expressions of his unmerited favor, okay? Number one, by his sovereign grace, we just read it, God chose people for himself before he created the world. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I know that you know that this topic has been the subject of great debate for centuries, right? I mean, this kind of stuff is fodder for Bible college students at 2 in the morning, and I was one, to debate this back and forth, God's sovereign choice, his choosing of people for himself. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to say more than the Scriptures say, but I don't want to say less than the Scriptures say either. I do believe that understanding this is foundational for truly appreciating God's grace. It says He chose people. He handpicked them. He selected people before they were even around. When I think of being handpicked or selected, I think of Remember junior high? Remember middle school? Remember how people would get, cho- you know, you're going to choose up teams or where, where I was, where it was square dancing. You know, you're going to choose partners for square dancing. You line everybody up. I was always one of the guys who was picked kind of in the middle of things, which was okay. But there were always the ones at the end. I still remember the faces of Tommy and Linda, who were always picked last. And as people were being selected and chosen, you know, all the popular kids went first, right? And then you get down to the end and you could see these two kids just kind of shrinking, turning red with shame and embarrassment. I can just imagine them thinking, you know, are we going to be last again? (laughs) And, you know, ultimately it was Tommy and Linda partners, you know, together for square dancing and do-si-doing together and all that. Why do we do that to kids for... (laughs) You know, just so brutal. But what this is telling us is that God has chosen, handpicked people for himself back before the beginning of time. You say, well, is that special? 
You say, well, should, should I feel special? Yes! <laughs> you should feel special if you are one of God's chosen people. Absolutely. If you are a believer in the gospel today, praise God for that. And do you know the primary cause of you being a believer in the gospel? Because God handpicked you millennia ago before you were ever around. You say, well, I thought I was just smart enough to know to accept Jesus. Listen, before you ever picked Jesus, he picked you. He set his love upon you. And some people think, well, I think he looked down the corridors of time and saw me and saw how smart and how spiritually sensitive I would be and he chose me and I say, well, you can believe that if you want. But then you get some of the glory for your salvation. That no one should boast, it says. Well, chosen for what? Let me summarize what it says in Ephesians 1. Chosen to be adopted into an extremely blessed, gloriously saved, blood-bought, redeemed, forgiven, holy family of devoted brothers and sisters who have been joined together and who will praise God forever for His glorious grace. That's what you were chosen for. You say, well, how do I know if I've been chosen or how do I know if someone else has been chosen? The way you can know if you've been chosen is how you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says. We know that he has chosen you, brothers, because of how you welcome the gospel. That's how you know. An act of God's sovereign grace, God choosing people for himself before he created the world. And then, you know what he did? He took those chosen people and he placed them in Christ. That's number two. God placed his chosen people in Christ before the beginning of time. 2 Corinthians 1.9 that we just read a few moments ago says it this way, God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. We had nothing to do with it. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.30 says it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. You know what? All of the blessings of God are found in Christ. Did you know that? It's kind of like this summer I took my kids to um, Zumbezi Bay. It used to be called something else. What was it? Wyandotte Lake, yeah. And you go over there to Christopher's Island and they got that big barrel that fills up with water. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, every few minutes, this bell starts to ding. And if you're standing in the right place underneath that barrel, and if it's mid-July and it's 97 degrees outside and 85% humidity, you are standing in the place of blessing. (laughs) Because when that barrel fills up and tips, that cold water just rushes over you. And it's a rush. And that place of blessing is analogous to what it means to be in Christ. That's the place of blessing. And God takes those that he has chosen, those that he has handpicked, he says, I'm going to place you in Christ in a new dimension of life, a new sphere, a new position, a new identity. And you're going to begin now to live out of that position of being in Christ. And God did it. He did it. Apart from us, apart from anything we add to the equation, God did it. 
He places his chosen people in Christ. That's why it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. In one sense, this whole process of transformation and spiritual growth that we talk about comes about as we gain greater understanding of our position in Christ. Because that's the position of blessing. That's where forgiveness is found. That's where grace is found. That's where righteousness is found. That's where strength is found. That's where holiness is found. That's where resurrection power is accessible in Christ. God did it by his sovereign grace. Number three, favorite again of many Christians, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Number three, by his sovereign grace, God works in all things for the good of his chosen people. This is not performance reward here. This is a grace-based promise, sovereign grace at work. God says, I chose you, I placed you in Christ, and now I'm going to work through all things your good. And I say, wait a second. So why does this other stuff happen? You know, maybe for you, 2009 was a tough year. Anybody? For a lot of people. It's a difficult year, a tough year. If you had to assign a word to 2009, your experience of it, maybe it would be something like stretching. (laughs) Tough, difficult. Things happen. Miscarriages. Pink slips. Divorce, family fractures. On a larger scale, you think of natural disasters and things happening all around the globe. And you say, but it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What about the, quote, bad things that are coming into people's lives? I'm at the point in my life where I'm not satisfied any longer with pat answers, with the standard stuff. And so these are questions I have. Why, God? You flung galaxies into space. You breathed out stars like Canis Majoris. Couldn't you have prevented 9-11? Couldn't you have prevented Katrina? Couldn't you have prevented this disaster or that hardship? And what's the answer? Sure he could have. Absolutely. (laughs) If you can create that kind of stuff, But so often he doesn't. But God, you said, for my good. Here's where I'm at. I don't think good here means pleasant. I think God redefines good. In fact, he tells us what good is. I work, he says, all things for the good of those who love me, who are called according to my purpose What is his purpose? Romans 8, 29, the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the good. That's the good that God is working for and towards in everything, all things that he allows and permits or causes in your life. It's to make you and I more and more like Jesus Christ. Do you understand today that the story of all that is is his story, not our story? We, we tend to think that, you know, I'm in my story and I'm the star of my story. 
I'm the director and the, you know, the lead and the star. But you know what? Everything that exists is the story of God. Everything. Life, death, people, friendships, relationships, heaven, hell, hardships, suffering, prosperity, abundance. It's all the story of God. And God's inviting us into his story if we'll join it. And we're back here in our little pinhead-sized planet thinking our deal's all about us. And he's saying, no, 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 no. The highest good, the greatest good I could ever do would be to conform you to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. Because my son is just off the charts glorious and I want to see him everywhere I look. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God who are called according to his purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so any definition of grace that does not make room for pain, hardship, tragedy, and suffering, I believe is an inadequate and incomplete view of grace. You see, Romans 8.28 is a promise of a life of refining, shaping, forming, molding God's people so that individually and collectively we end up reflecting the heart and the character of Jesus and in so doing bring him great glory as the only one worth emulating. And so God's chosen people are often not shielded, but they go through all things, family squabbles, miscarriages, breakups, divorce, illness, cancer, natural disaster, Katrina, job loss, suffering, Sometimes God spares his people from disaster. Other times he does not. But in all things, his sovereign grace is working in us to conform us to the likeness of Jesus, who himself was not spared suffering, was he? Church, we need a better developed theology of suffering. (laughs) Well, God, the awesome universe maker, Sovereignly, by his grace, chooses people, places them in Christ, commits himself to work for their highest good, and then last, not last, but the last we'll talk about today. I love this. God will completely transform every last one of his chosen people into the likeness of Jesus. It's an ironclad guarantee. He is going to get you there. He is not going to lose any of those that he has chosen. Those God foreknew, it says, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants to have a family. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. How many did he lose? Not a one. Every one, every last one of God's people will, by his sovereign grace, stay faithful and trusting in Jesus to the very end. No matter what befalls them, they will ultimately make it to heaven. They will ultimately become like Jesus Christ. And God's going to do it. Why such a great God would choose any of us is a mystery to me. I know me. I can be one of the most selfish, 
self-absorbed, self-focused jerks in the world. Why did you choose me? And don't look so smug. I know some of you. (laughs) Why God chose any of us is beyond imagination. We need a glimpse of the breathtaking beauty, not only of God's majesty and grandeur as revealed in the heavens, but in the outworking of his sovereign grace in our lives. And if you have a glimpse of that today, then it begs for a response. Remember how in December we talked about worship and how worship is our response to God? Remember that? Worship is our response both personally and collectively to God for who he is and what he's done expressed in and by the things we say and how we live our lives. And when you get a picture of the sovereign grace of God, it demands a response. You say, well, what's an appropriate response? Dancing, perhaps? Rejoicing? Shouting? Singing? bowing down, lifting hands, serving him, evangelizing, discipling, church planting, going on missions trips. It's all an appropriate response to the sovereign grace of God in our lives. You know what my response was as I was finishing up preparing for this message? This was a little unorthodox for me. As I was thinking and contemplating the sovereign grace of God, my response was to write a poem. And I'm not a poet. But since I took the time to tap out on my keyboard a a poem, I'm going to inflict it on you. (laughs) Because I can. It just came to me in about two minutes. Here was my initial response to getting a little bit clearer view of the sovereign grace of God. I believe in my glorious God. He is so good to me. Because of him, I am in Christ, where his blessings abound and are free. I've been chosen and called and redeemed, forgiven and saved and blessed. I am a new person in Christ, joined together with all the rest. It wasn't by my own works that I stand in this wonderful place, but because of his purpose and plan the praise of his glorious grace. You know, I think when it comes to this subject of grace, <laughs> I think when it comes to this subject of grace, there are two kinds of people, and I've said this before. The amazed and the aglazed. The amazed are people who hear about the sovereign grace of God and they go, no way. You chose me? You, the God of the universe, the star breather, the universe maker, you handpicked me? Before the world was even made, you picked me, and then you you placed me in Christ, the place of blessing, and then you commit to work for my good in all things in my life, and you've guaranteed that you'll take me all the way to heaven? No way! you're, You're too good! And they're overwhelmed by the grace of God. And then there's the glazed. You talk about grace and their eyes glaze over. And they're like, 
Oh, mm. Whatever. Wonder what's for lunch. Wonder who's playing tonight. You know what? If that's you, you don't get it. <laughs> but when you get it, when you get it, God chose you. He picked you. He put you in Christ. He blessed you. Your response will be great. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that no one in this room, in this church, would be aglazed by grace. You did not give us justice, what we deserve, because if you did, condemnation, judgment, damnation, and hell would be our lot. And it would be right for us to receive that. But no, you looked down from heaven, looked across millennia, and you handpicked your people and said, I want them. You drew us to Jesus. You even gave us the grace to repent and put faith in Jesus. And you put us in Christ. You work in our lives for good. And Lord, by your sovereign grace, you're going to take us all the way to heaven one day. May we be truly amazed as we stand in your presence. May we worship you. May our response be great because your sovereign grace is great. This is my prayer for our church. In Jesus' name.